So, um, we're taking a one-week little hiatus off of the rhythm of how we do things. So, if, if you've been part of the Veritas family, you know we've been through the book of Matthew, and we concluded that. We're going to start a new series this next weekend, a week from now, um, and I think you guys are really going to lean into this. We're doing a, a mini-series on the virtue of humility. Um, as an elder team, we've been really contemplating all the just rich generosity of God's grace that's falling on us here as a church family and thought, wow, we need to pull over and park in that area of humility and really learn what it is to humbly walk with our God when receiving such incredible gifts from Him. So that leaves this weekend just all by itself. So what we're going to do is take a journey to the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? So a one-week journey into uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to give you a minute to find that because it's not exactly a go-to book for most of us. If you snagged one of these Bibles, um, it's page 586, <laughs> if you want a quicker way to get there. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you find the book of Psalms, head to the right and you'll find um, Ecclesiastes. This is a, a tough book to really dig into. All right, you guys? So if, if the pages are still kind of stuck together in your Bibles on Ecclesiastes, I get it. It's, it's not an easily understood book. I want to read what one of the Old Testament professors said about it, in fact. Listen to this. He says, Ecclesiastes is perhaps the most enigmatic book in the entire Old Testament. And I like this. He gets real poetic. Like the desert sphinx, it teases us with questions yields its secrets only grudgingly, and will not allow us the luxury of easy answers. In other words, it's thoroughly irritating. <laughs> I, I love that. Here's the expert writing about this book, and he says it's thoroughly irritating. But at the same time, it's almost mesmerizing in its appeal. It draws us in by mimicking the perplexity and mirroring the perplexity that we feel as we grapple with life. Okay, so that's what this is all about. Ecclesiastes is all about a man who is contemplating life. And so it's going to beg some hard questions, and I think you're going to, uh, I think you're going to lean into it. So uh, I know you just got settled in, but following my custom, I'm going to have you stand back up, because I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I uh, want to give it our full attention um, You'll get a good taste of the whole book by just leaning into Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, panting, it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind just returns to its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are just wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, oh, look, this is new. 
It's already existed in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of those who came before. And of those who will come after, there will be no remembrance by those who follow them. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I've found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. So I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were in Jerusalem before me. My mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge. Madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Lord, these are your words to us, and uh, they seem odd to our ears. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would write to us. So, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you guide us? You have with great purpose laid these words out into this book right before us, and we want to hear from you. We want to learn from you, Lord, and so... uh, we are your servants. We are listening. Please, Lord, would you, would you teach us? And we're going to wait expectantly for that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So, Ecclesiastes, chipper way to start your holiday weekend, right? Um, so, this, this is Solomon, and he introduces himself to us. Now, this is Solomon at the end of his life. He's, he's becoming very reflective, but at, at the end of his life, uh, he introduces us right there in, in that first verse as a teacher, and that he's going to come back to. So I'm going to skip that just for a second. Primarily, he, he leads out, I'm your teacher, but he also says, son of David and king in Jerusalem. So a, a, a tip of the hand to give you a little background to him. Son of David had a really godly father, wrote many of the Psalms, man after God's own heart, but honestly, a pretty terrible dad, okay? So he had a, a pretty rough parenting growing up, all right? So that's part of it, is that he's the son of David. But he's also king. He's king in Jerusalem, guys. Not just a king, the greatest king that will ever reign in all of Jerusalem, all, of, all over Palestine, all over Judea. Vast empire, vast empire. Staggering wealth. I mean, this guy, when, when he says king over Jerusalem, I mean eclipsing all other kings by almost all ancient standards kind of the king of kings of his day, um, indulgent in women, um, but brilliant. I, in fact, here's what I want to do. I'm just going to read for you the description of Solomon from 1 Kings. I'm going to read out of chapter 4, but 1 Kings 4, listen to this. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They were eating and drinking and just rejoicing under Solomon's rule. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and as far as the borders of Egypt, just vast. If you, you know, look at that geographically on a map, you just see this massive empire. And they all offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Later on it says, throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. That little phrase there is, is 
repeated often in American lore because George Washington actually loved that phrase right there, under his own vine and his own fig tree. He actually repeated that in correspondence and speeches like over 50 times. And so it's become part of just American language or whatever. That idea of just peace. You got your own plot of land, your own tree, and you're just sitting and enjoying just prosperity and peace. It's, it's a way to say, all is well with the world. Just sit under the shade tree and enjoy this incredible prosperity. That's, that's what was true of Solomon's reign. And then the last part, God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005 he spoke about trees. Look, from the cedar of, of Lebanon, this majestic tree, just to the hyssop, the little weed that kind of grows out of the wall. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Emissaries of all the peoples would, would be sent from every king in the earth just to hear his wisdom and come to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So I'm just saying this guy knew what he was talking about, all right? <laughs> this, this guy is brilliant, and so now here he sits with all of that, a lifetime of accumulating all of that, now as our teacher. Okay, so that's really important. As you, as you open Ecclesiastes, understand this is, this is not some marginal dude. This, this is a brilliant dude of a lifetime of brilliance, amassing all this knowledge and wisdom, and he's about to teach us. So, like, seriously, have you ever wondered, what would it be like to be the most powerful person on the planet? What would it be like to be the richest person on the planet, the most influential, the smartest person on the planet, the most experienced lover on the planet? If you've ever wondered about any of those things, what I'm telling you is Solomon embodies it all. He has come to the apex, and now he's going to speak to us, okay? So he's older again now and very reflective. And maybe the reason I dig Ecclesiastes now is I kind of get what it means to be older and reflective. Like, I don't think I'm as old quite as Solomon was when he wrote this, but I can see it from here, you know? And as you get older, what you do is all of a sudden you start reflecting back. You start looking in the rearview mirror a little bit. And you start asking questions like, well, was it worth it? Okay? What, what am I leaving behind? There's, there's more miles back there than up here. And so you start asking questions like, man, was it worth it? Did I make the right choices? Am I leaving the right kind of memory? Those kind of things. And so that's what's going on. And I want to say, when I, the reason I point that out, um, if you're a student, if you're a college student or younger, I want to say, don't tune out at this point. In fact, of all the people in the room, you should be leaning in. Because Solomon is actually not speaking to other older people. He's wanting to be the teacher for those who are on the beginning of their life journey, okay? So what I'm saying is he is writing this, taking time to write this for you. Not, not so much for me. Like, I'm leaning in, I'm listening, but he's actually, his greatest contribution is to be for the youngest people who would take the time to page through and read what he has, has to say. So Solomon is our teacher, okay? The words of the teacher. And I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, he's got an incredibly irritating teaching style, okay? Very irritating. Um, 
he's going to ask more questions than he's going to answer for you. In fact, that's what he wants to do. He wants to bait you to question the underpinnings of your life. He wants to poke and prod and bait you with questions. In fact, at the end of the day, ask you more questions than he's even going to give answers to, and that's intentional. In fact, the key question of life is right there in those opening verses. So look back again at at the first chapter there, the words of the teacher, and here's what he says. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? (laughs) He starts off right out of the gate, this idea of absolute futility. What he does is he takes a Hebrew word, hevel, and then he repeats it in the plural. Hevel, hevelim, hevel, hevelim, hevel. Five times in one verse, he uses the same word for futility. So in the Hebrew language, it's not like the Greek language or technical language. Hebrew is a poetic language, and you can kind of mold it and play with it. And so if you really want to give emphasis, you just repeat it a bunch. And that's the way you know, oh, he really wants us here. So, hevel, hevelim, hevel, hevelim, like futility. It's just screaming out from this page. I am trying to say uh, life is meaningless. Life is unanchored, just kind of getting swept along unpurposefully. Vanity. Some of your translations have the word vanity, a vanity is kind of in there. Lots of English words trying to capture this. You add up a lifetime of effort, right? What does a person get for all of his effort, all of his toil? everything that he's doing, at the end of the day, what's the gain? What's the, what's the profit of it all? And he says, I can't find any. Vanity. It's like you're in this hamster wheel. Just go, 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 right? Work, work, work. And after it's all said and done, got a lifetime of this, panting, kind of hit the finish line. Well, so what did I get? What's the prize? What's the prize? Ah, yeah, no, no, no prize. There's no prize at the end. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And you guys, we get this in many little, many episodes of life. Like if you guys like outdoor work, for instance, if you want to weed your garden, you know what that's like? You get out there, especially when it's super hot, and you're out there weeding, 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 and then you get some good rains and some good sunshine, and all of a sudden you glance over and you're like, oh, was I even out there? Like where did all these weeds come from, right? Or mowing the lawn. Like I just mowed, I just mowed. What is going on? It just, it just keeps going, right? Do I get any reward for a moment? I see the Bodine boys like, no doubt, I have this little lawn mowing business, right? It's just on, it's incessant, right? Um, for me, it would be my inbox on my email. <laughs> I'm just, this is actually kind of a subtle way to apologize for all of you who have emailed this week and have gotten nothing back. It's just, you turn your back, right? I thought I cleared that thing. <laughs> you know, like, have I even touched it? So... That's the idea, right? We get little mini versions of that, toiling, 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 and then you're like, did I even start? Um, one little glimpse, I, Veritas, you're going to get to know me quite a bit as, you, as I just ponder out loud with you. One of my favorite movies, The Godfather Trilogy, at the end, and so if you haven't seen it and you want to, just know I'm about to show you the last scene from the last movie, okay? So this is, this is Michael Corleone taken through the whole trilogy, toiling, toiling, toiling for family, family, family. It's so important. I just want to work, 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 work. And here he is at the very end of the the third movie. Okay, go ahead and play it.
out of context, that has to be the mo most absurd movie clip you've ever seen in your life. I am fighting back tears so badly right now, I can't even tell you. <laughs> this, I really am. Pull it together. Because this is the Ecclesiastes moment. Did you see how tightly he was clutching to his daughter, his wives? Just clutching, clutching, clutching. And you get to the end, and where is he? By himself. Alone. All that he'd clutched for, all that he wanted, gone. Sitting alone. An orange falls off. Cool. Orange falls off his lap. Even the puppy. How did they train the puppy to ignore him at that point, right? Even the little puppy is like indifferent to Michael Corleone. Vanity of vanities. It's all just vanity. Here's what he says in, in chapter 7 about that. He says in Ecclesiastes 7, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. I'm in 7-2. Better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind. The living should take heart. Solomon is trying to get us to have that moment. Like, I'm at the end, and I'm looking back, and I'm trying to say to all of you, think about the end while you're at the beginning. Have the end in mind. Have, all of us are going to come to an end in this life. What does it mean? And when you get there, how will you reflect back? That's, that's what he's doing. So a key phrase, again, back in chapter one, a key phrase in this opening baiting question right there is at the end of verse three. Look at it again. What does a person gain for all of his efforts and he labors at, that he labors at, and then here's the phrase, under the sun. You really have to, like, pull over and park at every word and phrase of this opening line because here's what he's saying. I'm contemplating life and work and toil under the sun. That phrase he will repeat 30 times throughout this book. Sometimes under the heavens, under the sun, under the stars. And here's what he's saying. From an earthly standpoint. Okay? He's trying to say if all we have is life under the sun, if it's just feet anchored right on planet Earth, just the materialist kind of understanding of who we are, just if, if all we have is life under the sun, not seeing anything beyond the sun, just life under the sun, this is what you get. You get vanity, an earthly perspective. And so that baits the question, why is this in the Bible, <laughs> right? If this is all just to help us to understand what is life just under the sun, why is this in the Bible? Oh, here's why I'm, I'm telling you. I, I believe God has this very intentionally because the teacher is going to challenge the stock answers that we tend to give for the question, what is it all about? Okay? All of us as human beings get to this question in our life at some point, and maybe often in our life, where we just hit pause and say, what's it all about? And we have these stock answers that we often give, insert this as the answer, and he wants to challenge the underpinnings of where you usually go in your mind when you ask that profound question, what's this all about, okay? So here's what we're going to do. The first stock answer that I want to destroy, well, actually, let Solomon destroy for us. What's this world all about? What's this life for? First stock answer, make the world a better place, Okay? If, if your answer that, what's life all about? Well, I'm here to make the world a better place. Solomon wants to tear that down, <laughs> okay? 
It sounds so noble, right? How can I make the world a better place? I'm going to plant a tree because it will make the world a better place for the next generation. I'm going to make a friend. I'm going to make the world a better place. I'm going to use tubeless toilet paper. (laughs) Okay, you should snicker at that, except that when Oprah gives her 13 ways to make the world a better place, that makes the top 13 of how to make the world a better place. Tubeless toilet paper. I didn't even know it existed, but somehow I can make my world a better place for using tubeless toilet paper. The little cardboard is missing. Anyway, all I'm saying is people contemplate this stuff and they come up with all sorts of events. I want to make the world a better place. I want to make my mark in the world. Here's what I'm telling you guys. You're going to go through this book. If you have the courage to go through this book on your own, you're going to find that Solomon established justice. His first act as king was to to show justice like The vulnerable were helped and strengthened. True justice was going on under Solomon's reign. He he brought world peace, you guys. He brought peace to the Middle East. How many generations have ever lived on this planet Earth where there was peace all around the Middle East? He brought peace to the entire from the Euphrates, from, from like Iran, Iraq, all the way through all over North Africa. Peace. World peace. He advanced science. He advanced technology, like life was better because Solomon was on this earth. He really helped advance agriculture, all these different things. He even made life happier. He was an author. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. And so it wasn't just a better life. It was a happier life. This man of unparalleled accomplishment. And who cares? How many of you have ever hit pause in life and said, I am so glad Solomon was on this earth. My life is better because of Solomon, king of Israel. How many of you have ever even had the passing thought of having deep gratitude for Solomon? Some of you have never even heard of him, right? All the gardens that he created, the temple, the magnificent temple that was the showcase of the world at that point is nothing but a flat piece of ground. It's nothing left of it. All the gold that he amassed, the Middle East peace, where is it? What the teacher is trying to do is actually voice a warning about what would become the philosophy of existentialism. Existentialism. Okay, now, I'm no philosophy professor, and if you are one here today, I'll apologize to you already, because I'm just going to give a quick little, here's here's what Solomon's trying to keep us from. Here's what existentialism is, as a lay person explaining it to other lay people, unless you're a philosophy professor. Anyway, an existentialist says this, I see the meaningless and absurdity of the world, but I'm still going to do the right thing. I'm a free man with a free will, and so I'm going to do what I can to right injustices. I'm going to face futility with courage and kind of make my mark in the world. Some of you maybe, if you had a lit class, read um, something by Albert Camus. It looks like Camus. It's a French guy, Camus. Maybe you read The Plague or one of his short books. Incredible author. Existentialist through and through. Here's here's what he says at the end of The Plague. I have no idea. It's this doctor that's in this city walled in kind of quarantine city with the plague killing people off. And he faces that. He looks at that and he says this. I have no idea what's awaiting me or what will happen when all this ends. For the moment I know this, there are sick people and they need curing. Like, doesn't that sound noble? Doesn't that sound like that, that's a truly existentialist way to look at things? And here's what the teacher, here's what Solomon is going to say. Been there, done that, don't bother. It's futile. 
It's futile. Look, look at in that church, chapter 1. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of those who came before. Of those who will come after, nobody's going to remember those who follow them. Go back up to verse 4, in fact. Chapter 1, verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes. The earth remains forever. The sun rises, sun sets, panting. just goes to its place, right? No one even remembers. Can I, let me quiz you. How many of you can name all of your great-grandparents by first and last name? Think about that. How many of you can name your great-grandparents first and last name? You guys, you, I know you're still thinking, Rebecca. No, you can't. <laughs> I'm just saying, I can't either. I can't either. You guys, they were just like in the history of the world. They're right behind us. And we can't even remember their names, Right? That's what Solomon's trying to say is the world's just going to keep going. You toil and you labor to make the world a better place, and then it just goes right back to where it was. I weeded all that. It's just, yeah, it's just going to be, go, go right back. But I got peace in the Middle East. I, yeah, and it's going to go away again. And, but I, are you still with me? You're like, I can't believe I woke up to come to this this morning. Like, bluebird of happiness up there. Okay. Stock answer number two. If that's not it, okay, so if that's not the answer, make the world a better place. Here's stock answer number two. Make the world a better place for me, okay? Forget the make the world a better place for you people. Make the world a better place for me. That's the other answer that we often give, right? Because if there is only life under the sun, okay, if this is all we've got is this material world right here, then guys, go for it. Power riches, romance, knowledge, feast on it all. If there is only life under the sun, and you know what the teacher says? Look at verse 8. Guys, all things are wearisome more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing. The ear filled, and the, or the ear filled with hearing. Here's what, it, here's what he's trying to say. Chase that stuff, chase that stuff, chase that stuff. It will wear you out and disappoint you. You will not find the satisfaction. If the answer isn't make the world a better place, if it truly is make the world a better place for me, I'm telling you, that too will fail you. You'll be disillusioned. You will be left empty. Why pursue, think about this, why pursue love if truly there's only life under the sun? Like, if this is all just an accidental combination of, you know, neurons and electrons and everything, and there's really nothing beyond this, why bother with something like love? Because you know what we know from experience? After the ecstasy of love, there is a whole bunch of pain and agony associated with love. So just don't even go there. If this is all just materialist world, and there's nothing else than what we see under the sun, skip it. In fact, chase free love. Chase it down and see what you get. Because I'll tell you what our world has already received from a whole bunch of people chasing free love. Sex trafficking. Abuse. The hookup culture that has created clinics all over this city where young men and women are going in to find out that they have a lifelong sexually transmitted disease that will change their life forever. So chase it. Chase it all. And you know what you find? Emptiness and futility why, why dig jazz? 
I had to ask myself this question because I really like jazz. But if it's all just accidental notes hitting this cochlea that was just accidentally created, what's the difference between awesome jazz and noise hitting this ear? If it's all just under the sun, what's, why? Why get into it? Why build a house or remodel one, as I'm trying to do right now? Like, I had this Ecclesiastes moment. I'm trying to chisel out all of this tile in this bathroom floor because if I don't, when we lay the floor, the bathroom tile, because it's been layered by so many years of other people trying to make it really cool, that the floors won't be level, right? So I got to haul this stuff out. Well, it's like going through a history book. Oh, well, there's the person before that and the person before that. So I got all the way down to 1975 and found this red kind of organic, cool, hippie kind of red stuff under there. And I was like, man, somebody when they laid that down was like, come see my bathroom, man. Are you kidding me? Like envy of the neighborhood. Look at my red floor down here. You know what I mean? And you know what? Now it is an irritation. I'm just hacking at it. Everybody else says, no, this is cooler. No, this is cooler. This is cooler yet. And you know what? Someday I'm going to throw my keys to somebody else and they're going to be like, get this floor out of here. Who put this stupid thing down? Right? Why watch a sunset? Why do, I'm saying he's trying to help us to understand, guys, the futility of amassing a life for me. It will leave you empty. It will leave you empty. If your perspective is purely under the sun, what's it all for? Make the world a better place? Futile. Make the world a better place for me? Futile. Empty. Heartbreak. So I'm going to skip you all the way to chapter 12 because he actually does land the plane for us, okay? Chapter 12. Check this out. He's going he's gonna to hold your head under for a long time. 11 chapters, okay? There's a few bright spots along the way, but breathe quick because you're going back under for a long time, okay? So you get to chapter 12. So, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait till you're my age. He's the teacher. Don't wait till you're my age. I'm talking to you, youth. I'm talking to you. Remember your creator. Oh, wait, there's something beyond the sun? Oh, there's something on the other side of everything I can see? Yes, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of your adversity come and the years approach when you will say, oh, I have nothing to delight in. I've got one more thing to throw on the screen for you. It's um, uh, Van Gogh. Have you seen this painting? This is one of the last Van Goghs before his death, and most would say by by suicide. What he did toward the end of his life, he had drawn this in chalk before, many years earlier, and then found it and brought it to full color, this one, uh, and then shortly after died. So look at Look at what he's bringing out and then listen to what he says about what he painted, why he found, found, found that and brought that to life. This is Van Gogh. It seems to me that a painter has a duty to try to put an idea into his work. I was trying to say in this print that it seems to me that one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the existence of something on high Namely, the existence of a a God and eternity is the unutterably moving quality that there can be in the expression of an old man like that. 
without his even becoming aware of it perhaps while he sits in the corner of his heart, that there's something precious, there's something noble that can't just be meant for worms. Like, even the old man facing the end has to have this moment. Life has to be more than just living and dying and being eaten by worms. There's got to be. This is far from theology. This is still Van Gogh. This is far from theology. Simply the fact that the poorest woodcutter, the heath farmer or miner, can have moments of emotion and mood that give him a sense of an eternal home that he is really close to. And so he called this painting At Eternity's Gate. Van Gogh entitled this At Eternity's Gate. He was having an Ecclesiastes moment. He was trying to say to everybody that would stand in a museum and see that, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't get to the end and chase all these vain dreams. No, no, no. There's a creator. Know that early. Orient your life around not futility, but your creator. So go to the last verses of chapter 12 and let's wrap this up. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, but beyond these, my son, see how he's, he's reaching to you, young people, beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end of the making of any books, much study wearies the body, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God, keep his commands, follow him, it, this is discipleship, guys, it's what Brian was talking about earlier, that's why we have a church Help us, Lord, fear God and keep his commandments because this is for all humanity. God will bring every act of judgment to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Here's what he's saying. Look beyond the sun to the one who put the sun in place, the creator God, and realize he is the one who has given you life and breath and everything else, and ultimately he is the one that we will stand before. If you lock into that, if you lock your orientation, your north star guiding you through life is that there is a creator God and I will one day stand before him, it will change futility into purpose, okay? Here's how I want to end is this beautiful, so, so he was actually, Solomon was actually a big like finger pointing toward a yet-to-be-revealed truth that's going to come to us. So I'm just going to read the first couple of verses out of the Gospel of John in the New Testament. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. This is the one Solomon's been pointing us toward. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Guys, we have a vantage point that even Solomon didn't have. That creator God has come to us in Jesus Christ, has seen the futility, has seen the emptiness of our clamoring and chasing after the wind, and he's like, come to me. I want to give you purpose. I want to show you, I want to give you the North Star. I want to fill your life with purpose because it's all of a sudden you can be right with the creator because I I'm going to die for all of your chasing, all of your futility. I'm going to take care of that. All of your vain, you know, accumulation of things or trying to do the right thing and being pushed. I'm going to absorb all of that into myself and give you life because in me is life. I am the creator God. 
and I'm going to give you light and life. Where all you saw was darkness, if all you see is the first 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes, the sun bursts on the scene, literally the S-O-N, sun bursts onto the scene and says, come to me because I can see how weary you are and heavy laden you are. I want to give you rest. And so we invite you, church, we invite you, whether you've been here a long time or are brand new, we invite you to be on this journey with us as we get to know our creator, God, through Jesus Christ. And it will change your life. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, here we sit. We've just heard some words from you that frankly, don't even sound like words from you. (laughs) And then you capture us. But Lord, we're almost glad that you acknowledge our hopelessness. Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to have the courage to face that in the mirror because you wrote it for us, and it's true, and that is, that's, that's where our soul goes. And so, Lord, thank you that there is hope beyond the futility. There is hope beyond what is under the sun because you are there beyond the sun, beyond the heavens, beyond the stars. There you are, and you're beckoning us to know you. And we want to know you. And we want to find that purpose. Lord, we're a mess. And you love us still. And so we come to you again in our weakness. Having chased the wrong stuff, here we are again, clinging to your grace. Meet us in this moment, God. Fill our hearts and our lips with worship and praise that you deserve. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's.